Wonderful, how blessed that was. Sing that with you all, praise God. We sing about the privileges of being a Christian. When's the last time you thought about what a privilege it is to have been called by God, elect before all eternity, saved, beloved by God the Father, and kept for all of eternity? Have you I know sometimes you go through your week and you think, I'm not really all that special of a person, but if you would grasp those truths that we sang, you'd realize you're one of the most special people ever to live on this planet. Every believer in Jesus, I don't know if you realize this, every believer in Jesus is a child of God. We all are sons and daughters of the King of Heaven. As God's children, the privileges just mount up one on top of another. We're freed from sin's domain. Didn't we just sing that? We're privileged to be served by holy angels. Did you know that they minister to us? It's amazing. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God himself. He actually calls our body his temple. What an amazing thought. The Bible teaches us we're elect ones, that there's a special love. Sure, he loves the whole world, but there's a special love that rests on believers That's not all. Scripture promises us that we are heirs of God's everlasting kingdom. There is a coming age that will overtake this age, and we are heirs of that kingdom and of that age. We have a rich inheritance waiting for us. It's beyond anything we can imagine. We're told that. Splattered all over the New Testament is that guarantee of the believer's inheritance. A couple of examples, Colossians 1.12. Christ has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. 1 Peter 1.4, we have an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved where? In heaven for us, right? It's there. We possess it. You and I are going to be given that inheritance. It's not pie in the sky. It's true. It's immeasurable. It's indestructible. It's indescribable. It's plush. It's lavish. It's copious. Our God is generous. And it's our inheritance because we are children of the King. I know many of you don't understand that and believe that because you don't get all that excited about your Christian faith. There's no way you can absorb that and not get excited about that. Every one of us, every single true Christian without exception, nobody is left out, gets that inheritance. Do you believe that? Because here's the thing. You don't get actually to see that yet, do you? You're told you need to believe it, but you don't get to see it. That's why we're told we have to walk by what? Faith and not by what? Sight. We know that. We don't exactly see wealth and privilege in being a Christian. I mean, does someone treat you better because you're a Christian somewhere out there? I don't get treated better. As soon as I say I'm a pastor, many people end the conversation. That's kind of it. We still live right down here on planet Earth. It's in the realm of the mundane. It's sometimes the drudgery we have to go through. We're in traffic jams. We hear, hey, buddy, wait your turn. That's what we live in. doesn't sound like we're privileged, does it? Our daily experience is is not beholding holy angels, but we behold in front of us rude customers. (laughs) We have to uh, endure meager service, not to mention the countless bills we have to pay or else, hidden fees. Down here, honestly, it doesn't really feel like we're all that privileged. We still have to punch the clock, you do. We have to run errands. You're thinking of some of them right now. We have to turn in homework on time. We have to hassle with government forms. We don't say, I'm a Christian, I don't want to fill out this form. We have to pay taxes, from my point of view, lots of taxes. 
It can seem to many of us like we're in two different worlds. Which of these two worlds is actually true? You may believe the one down here is more true than the one you're promised in Scripture. It doesn't seem like those two spheres even touch. They're two realities we talk about, but can they both be true? Believers in Jesus Christ face this tension. They're two realities going in two different directions. We come here and we get told how wonderful we are. We go out there and we get told how terrible we are. You might really wonder which one is true. How can I reconcile the fact that I am supposedly greatly privileged in the sight of Almighty God, and yet all the circumstances that I can see surrounding me are ordinary? They're run-of-the-mill. They're restricting. They're even sometimes demeaning. Are we the privileged children of God or not? If God is our Father and this is our Father's world as we sing, He shines in all that's fair. He possesses the cattle on a thousand hills, Psalm 50, verse 10. We're adopted into his family through Christ, Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Why are we subject to the same laws everybody else is subject to? Why are we subject to the same conditions, the same delays, the same hassles? Everybody else, just like everybody else, where's the privilege? This Bible tells me tells us that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. But I still pay Howard County property taxes. (laughs) How am I supposed to think about this? Well, one day, a long time ago, the Apostle Peter was back in his hometown of Capernaum, and along came some men, and they asked him point blank, Peter, doesn't your teacher, Jesus, pay the temple tax? And that question triggered a lesson that Jesus wanted to teach Peter, and not just teach him, but teach us as well, a lesson about privilege that is not recognized in this world, a lesson about how to connect two worlds, the world in which we are privileged sons of the kingdom and a world where we are common nobodies on this earth. It's a great lesson. It comes from Matthew's gospel. Please turn there, Matthew chapter 17. It's a short passage, verses 24 through 27, but I think it has a very helpful lesson for us, and so we're going to deviate from Acts today just to learn this lesson. Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27, I'll read it. When they came to Capernaum, those who collect the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, From strangers, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. What a fascinating encounter in the life of Christ. You never have to try to make the Bible relevant, by the way. If you listen to what God says, God knew all about all of human history, and it always is relevant. This passage is relevant because it connects heaven to earth. It connects the present to our future. It explains for us in one simple encounter why we believers have to put up with so much of the common, the pedestrian, like everybody else. And it does by balancing a believer's privileged position, which is stated in this passage, with his ministry of not offending, his ministry of love. Interestingly, 
This account we read here in Matthew's gospel is only recorded there, not in any of the other gospel accounts. None of them contain it. Why is that? Well, it might be because Matthew was the tax man and he was interested in this encounter, and so he included it in his. We don't really know. Um, I'm pleased it's in there. I'm, I'm pleased it's recorded because this rather obscure event, this offbeat kind of a miracle that accompanied it, really teaches a wonderful and practical lesson. And I hope it will help you. I hope it will help you walk by faith now when you cannot see what you want to see. We learn in it how to relate our privileged position in the kingdom to the ordinary position of everyday life that you have to go out into once this message is over. That's really what the passage is about. There are two realities about believers, and they're both revealed in this passage. The first reality is believers are the privileged sons of the king. It kind of goes over that in verses 24, 25, and 26. The second reality is there in the last verse, in verse 27. Believers are not really known by the world, and so they have to fit in. These two realities of existence, rather than contradicting each other, must both be learned and harnessed if we are to try to live joyously and wisely in the present as well. So let's get into this first reality. Believers are the privileged sons of the king. I hope you believe that. That's verses 24 to 26. Focus in now on verse 24. There's an issue that is raised with Peter by the tax collectors. It says, when they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And he, that's Peter, said, nigh, means yes. So the setting of this happens in Peter's hometown, Capernaum. Now you may remember that for a considerable time, Capernaum was the center of Jesus' Galilean ministry, so it's not surprising that there's an encounter coming from this town around the Sea of Galilee in the north in Galilee. It was in Capernaum that Peter himself was well-known. They knew him as a disciple of Jesus. This was his hometown. This is uh, near where he grew up, and people knew him. He had a fishing business, evidently, on the lake that was there, and they knew him. They knew not just Jesus, they knew Peter. And if you notice, it appears that the other disciples were not even around during this encounter because only Peter and Jesus are even mentioned in the account. Maybe they'd gone somewhere else to lodge in the city, maybe... They were busy taking care of some task that Jesus had given them to do. He did that oftenly, often. But Peter, interestingly, Peter, not Jesus, was approached by the tax collectors. And they asked not just if Peter paid, but they really were asking whether Jesus paid the temple tax. They asked Peter about what Jesus' practice was. Why'd they do that? Well, maybe Peter was easier to approach Uh, Maybe they knew they didn't want to bother the teacher. Maybe they had learned by now that uh, Jesus was not an easy person to approach. He would often confound people. That's what uh, the church father, Jerome, concluded about this, that they learned by now because of all the miracles that this is a guy you don't just go up and ask a question to unless you really know what you're doing. And that's that's probably what happened. So they approached Peter about a question they had about Jesus. Now, in order to understand the importance of this issue to the Jews, you've got to kind of climb into their sandals here a minute. You have to understand what this tax was all about and why they would be asking it. The two drachma tax translates a single word in Greek, didrachma, and it means two drachmas or a double drachma. The drachma was a Greek silver coin used in the Roman Empire, and two drachmas were equal to the Jewish half shekel. The two drachma tax was not a Roman tax. It was a Roman-approved tax that the Jews were allowed to levy on their own people. 
In other words, the Romans allowed the Jews to collect it for the operation of their own temple. And the Romans did not usually do that. They didn't like the people they'd conquered collecting their own taxes. But you know, these hot-headed Jews, they had to have provisions. And so this was one of their provisions. It was significant to them, this temple, and the Romans understood that, and so they conceded on this point. In fact, the tax really had a long history in the history of the nation of Israel. If you go back to Exodus chapter 30 and verses 11 through 16, it describes the tax's origin during the construction of the tabernacle out in the wilderness. From the beginning, the tabernacle was supported by a tax from every male 20 years old and older, rich or poor, a half shekel. Josephus, who is the Jewish historian in the times of Christ or just after that, he informs us in his writings that during that time it was collected from males between the age of 20 and the age of 50. The tax was also collected for the upkeep of the temple when it was built in the days of Solomon. Later in Israel's history, during the time of the divided kingdom, according to 2 Chronicles chapter 24 and verse 6, King Josiah used this very law to collect money to repair the temple. And on it went. Even in the days of Jesus, this tax was levied to upkeep the temple. A scholar named J.W. Shepherd, in his book, The Christ of the Gospels, writes this, the tax or donations had to be deposited in the three chests of an inner chamber of the temple in Jewish shekels and must be changed by the money changers in the temple from Roman and other foreign coins into Jewish shekels, as it was, with an annual graft of over $200,000. The yearly receipts of this tax were destined to pay for the animals for the general sacrifices, pay the rabbis, pay the inspectors of the sacrifices, pay the copyists, pay the bakers, the women who washed the temple linen, water and other supplies, and even for the repairs of the temple, end quote. Well, the tax paid for a lot. The temple was important to the Jews, so... A lot had to be collected, and you can kind of understand now a little bit more of the mentality that they had. Jesus is in that age. He's somewhere around 30 years of age. Isn't he going to pay this tax? It's obviously quite important to them. I mean, they approached Peter, and they they asked this question. By the way, it was even paid by most Jewish males outside of the land of Israel, those in the diaspora. Now, there were a few restrictions. I should add this in as well. In the Jewish mission, it taught that the Gentiles and Samaritans were not allowed to pay it. It was for Jews only. Women were not required to pay the tax, but women could give voluntarily if they wished. Priests did not have to pay the tax. They were exempt, for they served the temple. Usually, the tax was collected before Passover in the month of Adar in the springtime at some time. And so the collectors would go out, and they would go through all of Israel. They would collect this tax with the approval of the Romans. They'd bring the money back, and it was what they used to keep the upkeep of the temple. Don't confuse these tax collectors with the normal tax collectors that we hear about in the Gospels, the publicans, and all of that. These were special tax commissioners sent out for this one temple tax only. And when these commissioners... Asked Peter, doesn't your teacher pay the tax? That's because evidently it was already due. (laughs) And they had not paid it yet. This scene in Matthew probably occurred in the fall. And it was supposed to be paid in the spring. And the way the question is asked is there's a positive answer that is expected. It has the force of, he does pay the tax, doesn't he? 
They expected it. They expected Peter to say yes. And their question, as simple as it, as it is, as straightforward as it may seem, was not really just about the money. The question had implications about Jesus' relationship to the temple. Here is this explosively popular rabbi performing undeniable miracles, gaining a tremendous following in Galilee, and what he did and his practice mattered to the Jews. Did Jesus, this, this very public figure, this man that other people were emulating, did he pay the temple tax or not? You may remember Jesus had denounced the religious leaders on many occasions. So it's likely that some suspected that he was in conflict with the temple in Jerusalem and he wanted to make some kind of a political statement against them. And so he had told his followers, I'm not paying it, you don't pay it. They probably thought that or worried that that would be the case. The question also had implications for Jesus' relationship, not just to the temple, but to the law of Moses. Moses told the Israelites, collect this tax. Was Jesus going to keep the law? If he didn't pay, did Jesus consider himself a priest? Or what? Did he think he had some kind of an exemption? Exemptions required explanations. What was his? But Peter answers this quite quickly and definitively. He just replied, yes. Yes, Jesus does pay the tax. Now, we're not told how he knew that, but he said it. And that might have been the end of this encounter. It might have gone no further. I mean, there are a lot of things that happened in Jesus' life that we don't read about in the four Gospels. They don't tell us about everything, except that Jesus had used and wanted to use that question to instruct Peter about something. Look at verse 25 towards the end and verse 26 there. He said, yes, and when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon, that's his other name, from whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax, from their sons or from strangers? Don't you like multiple choice questions when there's only two? two. You've got 50% chance of getting it right, you know? Peter evidently had been out in the street when he was approached by these tax collectors. When Peter got back to the house where Jesus was, Jesus began his instruction with a question about the tax, as if Jesus had been in the street and overheard it all. Notice it says Jesus spoke to Peter first. That's emphasized. As soon as Peter came in, before Peter could say anything, that detail is meant to show you that Jesus was using his supernatural knowledge in this situation. Jesus was fully aware of what had happened and every word that was said, even though he was out of earshot. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 8, it says, God knows the heart of human beings. What you're thinking about right now and what you're going to think about tomorrow morning, God can read all your thoughts. That's supposed to put fear into us, by the way. In John chapter 2 and verse 25, it says this of Jesus, the man. It says, Jesus did not need anyone to testify concerning man. Why not? For he himself knew what was in man. He could read all their thoughts. No mere human being can read the thoughts of another. And so we get a glimpse into Jesus' divine powers right here. And this must have impressed Peter greatly because when someone can overhear whatever it is that you say or whatever anyone says to you, there are no satellites, right? There's no uh, drones that are following us around. That's absolutely amazing. How would he know that? This lesson about Jesus' omniscience, Peter learned well. Fast-forwarding Peter's life a little bit, 
after Peter denied knowing Jesus three times and after Jesus was raised from the dead and he was with the resurrected Jesus in John chapter 21 and verse 17, Jesus asked Peter not once, not twice, but three times, Peter, do you what? Love me. Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times. And when he got to the third time and he'd answered the third time, Peter's response was, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. I couldn't hide it from you if I tried. You read our heart and our mind. You know I love you. And so here Peter was getting introduced to Jesus' prescience, his omniscience, his ever-present ear. Notice now what Jesus teaches from this. In this question, Jesus relates taxes to the kings of the earth. Who are the kings of the earth? They're just kings on the earth, right? The pagan kings, that's how they were referred to. That's how the phrase is used in places such as Psalm chapter 2 and verse 2 or in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 6 and verse 15. Remember, in ancient governments, very few of them were you know, like ours or anything like ours. They usually had one guy that was in charge of it. They were called a pharaoh, an emperor, a king, something like that. But these kings of the earth who had all this power and all this authority and all the armies in order to do whatever it is that they wanted to do, they gathered the taxes, didn't they? And they did it to pay for their armies. They did it to pay for their palaces and their building projects and their nice little swimming pools and all the rest of that, right? They did it to collect whatever it is that they wanted it for. It was for their families. It was for their homes. It was for their sons. It was for their many wives, if they had many wives. It was for their lifestyle, right? That's why they collected it. Now, Jesus here mentions two types of taxes, customs or tribute, which uh, were taken from the goods and services, a tele, and then the poll tax, a tax that would be levied on individuals, uh, the counting of heads at a census, would give who to, who to collect that from. The two kinds of taxes are meant to be sufficient to represent the general issue that Jesus is raising. He's not talking about just these two taxes, but the use of governmental authority to command the people to draw from them any taxes that they want. So he's taking the issue of the temple tax and he's expanding the issue to a variety of taxes and to our relationship to the government with any kind of tax. The question really is simple. Do the kings of the earth then collect those taxes from their own children or from the others, from the stranger? The question had an obvious answer, which Peter immediately gives. From strangers, he says. Peter's doing well, by the way. He answered yes to the other one, and he got that right. He answered strangers here. Guys, two for two right now. For all the times we pick on Peter for the things he didn't do well, please notice he did that well right there, okay? It is the strangers, that is, those not in the king's family who pay the taxes. A king would not collect taxes from his own sons. The money was meant to pay for them anyway. The kings would, though, regularly and sometimes forcibly tax their citizens. Notice Jesus draws a conclusion for Peter from this. The particle is used here in Greek, ara. It draws an inference. Jesus said to them, then, or therefore... The conclusion is this, the sons, the sons are what? They're exempt. They're exempt. That's what he wanted Peter to get. The sons are exempt. Literally, the term there is free. They're free from the obligation to pay the taxes, and that means they're exempt. I know some of you want to leave right now, but I still got more of the sermon to go. Just dart out right now, cover your ears, and then you'll never have to pay taxes again, right? (laughs) Don't cut off at this point. 
Logic demands this conclusion. The king's sons are in a different relationship to the taxes and to the government than the general citizens. And Jesus did not state this, but the next point was obvious to Peter. Jesus as the son of God. Let me say that again. Jesus as the only begotten son of God who came down from heaven was exempt from paying the temple tax. Or for that matter, any tax or custom or fee. And since Peter had just finished confessing Jesus to be the Son of God, if you go back to chapter 16, you'll see that. He is the Son of the living God. He asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they gave the opinions of lots of people. And he turned to his own disciples and said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the what? The Son of the living God. And he was blessed for that, remember? Peter immediately got the connection. He understood. Yes, the Father had levied this tax on the people to support the temple. Yes, The temple was to be supported. Yes, it was right to collect the tax. But no, Jesus was not under any obligation whatsoever to pay it. Jesus was the son of the king of heaven. Jesus called the temple my father's house in Luke 2.42. His dad owned it. Why would he be paying for it? In Matthew 12, 6, it says Jesus was greater than the temple. He was the one whom the temple was built to honor. If Jesus were required to pay the tax, he would be classified as an outsider, not a son. And God would never require his only begotten son to pay the temple tax. Now that is staggering, but that is true. And it does relate to us as believers because God is the king and we are the sons and daughters of the king through Christ, not on our own merit, but nevertheless it's true. We have been given something we don't deserve, but here's what you need to understand. It's true. We are sons and daughters of the highest king in the universe. We are part of the family of God, not on our own, not by our birth into this world, but through Christ. We have a privileged position in relation to that king, and we should know it. He knows it. Everything in this world is going to be transferred from other people's accounts into the accounts of Christians. That's true health and wealth. We are going to be given the rule of this planet. All of it is going to be given to us to rule over with Christ. Don't you remember what Jesus promised in the Beatitudes? The humble will inherit what? The earth. The earth. Through Christ, we are not only transferred to God's kingdom, but adopted into the very family of the king to receive an inheritance. Romans 8, you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out to the king of heaven, daddy, father, Abba, father. John chapter 1, verse 12, as many as received Jesus Christ to those people, he gave the right, let me, let me change that a little bit for you, he gave the privilege to become children of God. It's a right. It's a privilege. Romans 8, 16 and 17, the Holy Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, what? Heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What's he going to get? We get what he gets. So listen, we are exempt. We are exempt just as Jesus Christ 
was exempt. I hope the IRS is not about to pull me out from the back there and (laughs) not let me finish this message. But we are, we're free. I don't know if you've made that connection or not, but you are free. Just as he was free. I know, you're stroking your beard, you're scratching your head. Why should I still pay taxes? That's why we got a part two. That's why there's a second half. The second is believers are not known by the world, verse 27. Read verse 27 there as I read out loud. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea, throw in a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Exemption from the requirement from God was not the only consideration. Jesus felt himself free from obligation on the one hand, but he did not want to leave the the wrong impression on the other hand. On the one hand, he wanted to make it clear to Peter and to all of his disciples that God placed no obligation for him to pay the tax. Jesus was not just like everybody else. But on the other hand, he also wanted to fulfill the law in every respect and not be a cause of stumbling for anyone else. If these poll tax collectors had really understood who they were talking to, they would have been more like John the Baptist who said, Lord, I'm not going to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. But they didn't. They didn't recognize who he was, you see. Jesus tells Peter, lest we give offense, pay it. Pay the tax. The verb offense is a strong one. It's scandalizo. We get our word scandal from it, but it means to stumble, to cause someone to sin. That involves more than just offending somebody or hurting their feelings or their emotions or something like that. It's letting yourself be something that others completely trip over and they're not able to come to the truth because of your example. They stumble and trip over you and they don't come to faith because of your example. This is not, beloved, teaching us that all offending of other people is always bad. Jesus often offended people. You know that, right? If you read through the Gospels, you would see that. I'll give you an example. Earlier here in Matthew 15, verses 12 and following, it says the disciples came to Jesus and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement, whatever it was? But he answered and said, he didn't say, oh, I'm sorry. What did he say? Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. That's offensive. By the way, if I ever offend you from the pulpit, try to remember that, all right? (laughs) I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm trying to preach the truth. And there's so many lies out there and lies are in our heads. And sometimes we need to be offended. It's good and helpful to us, you know? Jesus' teaching was offensive to many people. They considered themselves to be outstanding citizens, and he said to them, the prostitutes will get into heaven before you. That's offensive. The world will be offended by our stand with Christ in the Bible. If no one has ever been offended by your Christianity, you're probably not living it right. But Jesus is talking about being a stumbling block to other people, that is to their faith, to their obedience towards God. Other people would naturally think there's Jesus, a Jewish male between 20 and 50. He's a rabbi. He's teaching the law. He should support the temple tax. 
If Jesus and Peter didn't pay it, then there's a real possibility some would not even listen to Jesus' ministry and teaching. Remember what Paul said to the Jews, I became as a what? A Jew, that I might win Jews. To the Gentiles, I became as a what? A Gentile, that I might win Gentile. They may even have used that to accuse him and his ministry of being against the temple or against the law. Jesus did not want his actions to lead others to sin. And we are to follow Jesus' example. We are to live in such a way that our lives do not put a stumbling block in front of other people, toward other Christians, even, even towards other believers. That's what it says in Romans 14, 13. Determine this not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. If there is a practice that you have and it's causing a stumbling block to other people, you should be evaluating that and the Holy Spirit should be teaching you from the word of God that that is not something you should be doing. It's holding other people back from coming to faith because of how you're living, you see? You don't want that. You say, but how does all of this work with taxes? Well, it should be obvious. The tax was to be paid, right? In full, without argument, without grumbling and complaining. It didn't matter that they were exempt. What mattered more was living without causing offense. Someone may object, but what if the tax was going to be used for some bad purpose? It didn't matter. It didn't matter what they used the money for. It didn't even matter what the motives of the tax collector's hearts were. You may remember one of those times Jesus was in the temple in Jerusalem and he called it a den of thieves. Remember that? The ones who got the money, many of them were greedy, unrighteous men. Jesus knew that because he knew the hearts of men, and he said, pay it anyways. You say, but does that work with taxes to civil governments also? Of course. Matthew twenty two twenty one. I thought Jesus kind of made that issue clear. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, yes, and unto God the things that are God. See, except when it would cause him to disobey, Jesus taught us in this age, to be subject to the human government. Paul followed that very instruction in Romans 13, 7. He said, render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Yes, it is true that God has authority over all of human government. Yes, it is true that we as his sons will be higher in authority and power than even the kings and the governors and the presidents and the congresses who are in this world right now. That's true. In fact, I'll take it to another level with you. In a spiritual sense, we're already above them now because we're seated at the right hand of God the Father along with Jesus in some mystical way that Ephesians chapter 2 says that we've been raised with Christ and we've ascended into the heavens with Christ and we've seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 through 7. But we are still to submit to them. Because they don't know who we are. They don't know who you are. First John chapter 3. Beloved, now we are children of God. But it has not appeared as yet what we are. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. For we will see him just as he is. It goes on in that passage. It says, for this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Christ. We are in this world. This world cannot distinguish between the sons of God and the phonies. This world cannot tell what's going to happen after people die. In fact, they think when you die, everybody goes to a nice place, right? You go to a funeral, when you die, everybody seems to go, unless they're like Hitler. 
Oh, this person lived a wonderful life. Now they're with the angels and they're singing above. They're watching down on you. They're watching the football game. You know, they've joined the football gods and everything is fine for them. They can't tell any of that. But it's true. You cannot get your self-identity from what they think. You have to get it from the word of God. Christ himself demonstrated how to live with this tension in John 19. In John 19, we don't have time to turn there. It says, uh, Jesus was put into this very situation, not concerning paying taxes, but submitting to earthly government. He knew full well he was the son of God, and he went ahead and he submitted to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. In Romans 19, 7 through 11, it says this, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and by that law, he ought to die because he, Jesus, made himself out to be the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate flexed his muscles. He used his human government, right? He thought he had the upper hand, and he said, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? And what did Jesus say? Oops, yeah, I forgot that. I'm trembling here. What did Jesus say? You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Do you know what Pontius Pilate did at that point in time? He ran out and he doubled his efforts to try to get Jesus released. He knew there was God in judgment after this life. And Jesus told this governor who stood with the authority of the emperor of Rome, by the way, more authority than anyone in America has, you have no authority unless my father gave that authority to you. And you better believe that you will give account for what you do right here. So listen, if Jesus, who deserved all honor as the son of the living God, could trust his heavenly father under human authorities who are quite evil and bad in this world, and then wait for the time when God would choose for him to be glorified, wait for the time for him to be declared the son of God through his resurrection from the dead, and he could submit to the horrors of crucifixion, then we obviously can humble our hearts and we can submit to the governing authorities and to all of the abuse and all of the lack of recognition in his present life also because we know one day God will reveal the sons of God. If Jesus was concerned with not giving offense and to submit to doing the will of God, how much more should his followers be concerned with that? But, I want to add this in because it's there in the last verse. How Jesus paid this tax is so precious. Just almost to underscore and say, see, we're not like everybody else. Verse 27, however, (laughs) the Lord has a sense of humor here. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook, remember he's a fisherman, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel in the mouth. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Some have tried to say this wasn't a miracle, that, that we're supposed to allegorize this and what Jesus was saying. Peter, you're a fisherman. Go work a little harder, earn a little more money, sell the fish, and then you'll get money from that. The shekel in the mouth is just a way of saying, you know, you're going to get fish and you're going to sell it in the marketplace and give money. And some people don't know how to read. <laughs> I mean, they work overtime to confirm their preconceptions. The anti-supernatural bias drives a lot of so-called scientific people to silly conclusions. 
Honestly, that's a ridiculous interpretation. The storyline is clear. Peter was not instructed at what place to go to the sea. Anywhere, just go. Just go do what you do. Throw in a hook. He wasn't even told what kind of a hook. He wasn't told what was supposed to be the bait. We don't even know what kind of fish that he was, he was searching for. And then take the first fish. No, you're not after going to go through 25 until you find a fish. Take the first one. Open its mouth. A shekel, the exact amount. Boy, life would be easy like that. The coin was a, a stator. Stator was a silver coin equal to four drachmas or two didrachmas, the equivalent of the tax for two men, Jesus and Peter. Some, it's crazy with the commentaries. They speculate the kind of fish. Who cares? It's, it's kind of missing the point. This was a miracle of knowledge, a miracle of prescience, a miracle of guidance. There's no natural way Jesus could know that a fish had a stator in its mouth at the bottom of the sea and wherever Peter would just choose to throw it in there, boom, there it would be and have the exact amount they needed for that tax that they just came and asked for a few minutes ago. It's just so ridiculous. Sorry, I had to get that out of my system. (laughs) This is exactly what Peter found. This is exactly what Peter did. That Peter was exempt from the tax is hinted at by Jesus attaching Peter's payment to his. Beloved, we never hear of Jesus Christ providing money for any of other believers at any time through this means. So don't go to the local pond and pray this passage over it or rip out the sheet, throw it in the water first to sanctify the water, throw it in there, and then be disappointed because your faith didn't work like that. Proper hermeneutics, people. But Jesus did do this for Peter, and this is what God will do for you. He underscored to Peter, because you are a child of the king, you can appeal to the king at any time to provide whatever the governments say they need from you. You can ask God, and God will give it to you. And don't you forget that. You are not like somebody else, and he doesn't have to do a miracle with a fish to get money to you. It could be you pray and something shows up in the mail. It could be you pray and God gives you a raise. Who knows how God can do it? But the point is you always have your heavenly Father to appeal to. Do you believe that? Do you believe that when you pray, God will provide? Look around the building if you don't, because God provided this. When the taxes come and the fees come and you feel I'm not being treated properly, you remember you're a child of the king and humbly you appeal to your heavenly father. You never demand anything from God. You humbly say, Father, you know what they're requiring of me. You know my situation. You know I've been hard working. You know I went looking for a job. I need your help and he will remember you. The point is the provisions will be there when the provisions need to be. And sometimes, sometimes God will do it in a unique way. So you know that is him providing it. And you know he agrees with his word. You are a child of the king of heaven. And don't ever forget that. Father, help impress that truth deep on our hearts that we are your children and you love us with an everlasting covenantal love. And in that love, you make provisions for us. Thank you for the trials. Thank you for the lean times where we don't have as much even as unrighteous fools around us that we might long for that inheritance in the future. Thank you too, Father, that at times you answer these special prayers and provide for your people in special ways. Those little details that prove 
you know every tiny, minuscule, microscopic thing that is going on in this planet. And you're in control of it all. And all, all of it works together for good to those who love you and are called to salvation for your purposes. May we believe that. May we maintain a humble attitude. May we fit in, in a sense, as just regular people showing others how to live and being a light. And may we not complain that our day of glory hasn't come yet. For it's a long valley to walk through before we get to that mountaintop. And Father, we are grateful that that promise is rock solid to us and we can claim it and live by it even now. For Christ's glory, we pray, amen.